0: All right, thank you for joining the Cardwell Beach Marketing Podcast. My name is Ryan Erickson, Chief Strategy Officer and partner at Cardwell Beach. And in this series, we're interviewing senior marketers across industries to develop perspective on what marketing will look like in a post-COVID-19 world. And today's guest is Michael Gale, Chief Marketing Officer at Wind River, a technology firm that delivers software solutions for industries including aerospace, automotive, medical, and telecommunications. Michael is also the author of The Digital Helix, which discusses strategies for companies and organizations to adapt to the digital age and a host on one of the two Forbes podcasts. So Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Very
1: excited. This will be a fun conversation. So
0: where would you like to start? So let's talk about weathering the storm and you're in <laughs> Seattle over there and I'm in New York, but the storm is the same for all of us since we're all remote and throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, technology has formed the backbone of how we do everything, basically work, socialize, keep our businesses running. And how has this unprecedented moment changed the way that you've marketed Wind River and the, the software and services that you provide?
1: Yeah, let me start with a couple of analogies. First, I'll quickly give you some background, because if anybody's heard of Wind River, I would argue they think of the movie. We make embedded software, right? Which doesn't mean a lot. But if you think about Perseverance, 31 million miles away, that's our software. That software is allowing Perseverance to run mission-critical, self-deterministic motions on a planet 31 million miles away. If you use Verizon and use Verizon's 5G, that runs on our cloud. So I think... We are the stuff you don't see, but we're also, I think, seeing an enormous amplified value because as things move virtually, things move into machines, right? You have to have an operating system to work on it. So the analogy I'll give you is this. The car was invented, really, 1890s, frankly, by Benz. But it wasn't actually till after the First World War that cars became an endemic sort of transportation device. And I think that what COVID has done, because it's a calamitous effects on human life and society, is it's shaking companies to recognize the stuff we saw before, digital virtual that's interesting it's actually going to be the very core of how we transport around marketing you know communications engagement management everywhere. We used to be a really, really physical events-based business because a lot of the accounts we work with are in government, huge corporations, you know, major robotics companies like KUKA and stuff. So they used to physical contact with us about how to build a robotic system, putting AI into place. We couldn't do that anymore. So we instantly had that war effect where we slammed our heels in and went from, you know, maybe five to 10% virtual and digital to really 95% plus virtual and digital literally overnight. So it was like a shock uh, to the system in a good way because we sort of knew it was the right thing to do. But it completely transformed skill set requirements, outputs, even technology stacks that we used in less than 90 days. And I don't think it matters how big or small you are. You've probably experienced that same tsunami of virtual experience since you know March, April of last year.
0: That must have been pretty wild. I'm sure you got a lot of sleep during that phase. Well,
1: fortunately, no, because work and home turn into the same thing as everybody <laughs> else on the planet. So like, is that a weekend? No, it's just an hour off yet. I mean, I think about the amount of hours the team has worked there and I've seen elsewhere. And I think people are constantly working 70 plus hour weeks. And I don't think that's unusual anymore. And I don't think that's healthy. But is that level of energy and effort is necessary for that sort of transformative change. And in a small or mid-sized business, you're going to go through the same pain. It's actually, it's more anxiety inducing than it probably is in a larger corporation.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's strange everybody was so afraid on on the management side to let people work remotely and it actually ended up that people are working too much and need to pull back so the fears were were founded but we're just coming from the wrong place right Yes,
1: it was like a, <laughs> trust humans were really good right we' we'll get i mean people have lent in everywhere incredibly well i i mean i, I we haven't measured our latest wave of customer satisfaction, but you know we had a good year last year financially, and obviously we're a private company. But I think it was a shocking example of how human interaction in virtual environment can actually in many ways be better than human interaction in a physical environment.
0: Mm-hmm very very strange and well i mean for for most of us right i mean even beyond your role as cmo you spend a lot of time thinking about the future of our digital world and i, I guess are there any lessons or, or best practices that you can share from some of this contemplation you know whether it's from your book or, or from personal experience
1: <laughs> uh, yeah there are three actually uh, it's funny i'm speaking at an event in germany this week which is the world's biggest print manufacturing event it's been physical for 70 years only runs every four years It's like the world cup of events right so it was all the and you could see a certain anxiety from the organizers, organizers. I'm like, look, all the attendees have been virtual for a year, trust me, they're, they're trained. But there are three things I think that, that can get rid of anxiety. Uh, and I think this, this anxiety existed for everybody. One is work out the moments that your customers really care about. And if I'm sitting at a home with a kid screaming, running around me doesn't mean I don't need the same things I've I've needed before in an interaction, but I might need something a little differently than before. Packaging, simple, easy communication, you know, not not streams of emails, but one simple thing to do. A place where I can go click a button eight o'clock at night and get what I want. I think that sense of environment and moment is is really got to force you to sit on a wall at home or wherever and put up post-it notes saying, what are the 10 moments my customers really care about? not the big stuff. It's actually a lot of it small stuff. Really interesting to me. We learned this from service support algorithms. You know, we use an AI engine to work out what people are asking questions about. Really small moments matter an enormous amount. And it's a good chance to sit back and say, right, what are those 10 moments my customers or potential customers really care about? Let's focus on those. And that was a really big learning to us because, you know, a company is actually in its 40th year this year, right? Which is unusual in tech. Uh, it's easy to get locked into sort of predisposition history and look things change literally they literally changed overnight you've got to recognize customers have different experiences and needs overnight that they didn't have or weren't that you know highly prioritized beforehand so track those 10 moments write them down stick to them learn from them i think the second big lesson was you've got to find highly integrated program management pieces. So if people come to you and they are lost for a brochure, make sure you've locked them in to a self-selecting journey that so they get the brochure. Then they have three choices of what they can do after. You don't send them one choice, you give them choice. So moments and choice are a really big deal in this process. And thirdly is keep your metrics simple, right? Really keep them simple. There's no need to make it complicated. Basic metrics really matter. And I think particularly in a virtual world where we are drowned in data, it's super easy to look as if you're waving when you're drowning in it. Just keep that data super simple. The three or four things that really matter, 10 moments that you really think can make a difference and give customers choice in everything you give to them. Don't just push them down one path. We learned those lessons hard. We've seen them in the book anyway, but I suppose practically actually having to work with them really illustrated it. In fact, we're generating, because the team doing this, returns that are like two and a half times higher on a third of the budget. Because if you get those things right, you can really change the economics of your marketing.
0: That's some pretty wild numbers that you can experience with that. Right. And uh, I guess, you know, if if you're looking at the old school four Ps, you're, talking about a change in place as, as a primary mode for, especially on, on the business to business side, right? Where you're, everything about your product is largely the same, but people are experiencing it in a different place and you need to adapt to how they're going to consume it and how they're going to interact with it. And I can definitely associate with the screaming kids aspect of uh, working in a different place and having to make B2B decisions and purchase complicated things in, in the midst of screaming there. So <laughs> definitely you have to adapt your marketing to that moment. That's a great heading for an article.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but it is true. So for example, silly stuff like chat, right? You know, you can get chat on any website. It's unbelievably powerful, right? So if you're a small or medium business and you are using web destinations for some form of interaction, don't use them as brochureware. use them as engagement wear. Yeah, you may not have a large custom service support team, but if you've got one person in marketing or a person in sales, they can be the person that handles chat when it works. That ability to be there in the moment is unbelievably powerful, right? You're going to learn from it nine, nine out of ten times. For one out of ten Time that it helps you close more business. The value business ten percent. So I just need things like chat, you know, simple tracking of what people are doing and are not doing on the site. Not complicated stuff. You don't have to do it that often. It can really make you make better decisions. Whereas kids are screaming around you or dogs are chewing furniture.
0: Yes, that is uh, anything that can help you make better decisions in that environment is, is much appreciated on, on the customer side for sure. So um, I guess tactically, have you seen any kind of sleeper tactics or, you know, marketing channels that you weren't so gung ho about before the pandemic that you've just kind of gone all in on or have seen surprisingly good results from in the midst of, you know, all the, the COVID-19 restrictions?
1: So I'll give you the one that was a shock to the organization. And although I'm actually have done it for nearly a decade, the change in results was outrageous for me. It still blows me away Was LinkedIn. The ability to connect to customers on LinkedIn and to share a few things, not I'd like a call, don't sell, right? But to share ideas and content, unbelievable responsiveness to it. I just It blew me away at every level. And we've seen this globally. And we've seen it in very complicated accounts with very senior people. But just people's willingness to connect on LinkedIn because they're at home all day long and their willingness to interact if we have really good content was outrageous. And I don't want LinkedIn enough now start charging for it. But if I literally want to connect with, let's say, I've got 2,000 accounts and each account has 20, you know, real people in it. So let's say 10 maybe. And you go, okay, you could build a universe, probably of twenty to thirty percent of that in less than three months, where you actually have a direct relationship with somebody on LinkedIn. You could never have done that in a physical world, and you couldn't have done it in a world where we're all running around an office all day. So there's been an enhanced intimacy, I think, with LinkedIn that is really powerful. The second thing that really worked well for us, and we thought it would do, but not to the magnitude it does, are content-based webinars, and they again, they don't have to be big, they don't have to be complicated. But we went from producing. No, probably 5%, 10% of our volume, um, real leads uh, in webinars to about 60 to 70%. And actually, our volume has gone up. Uh, probably this quarter will be 120%. And those things just depend on experts' content. There's some nice packaging. But LinkedIn webinar, unbelievably powerful. The third thing is natural search. And it's just obvious, right? And you can't buy natural search. But making sure your content is as optimized as it can be, for the keywords that matter really are incredible. So LinkedIn Webinar and SEO were an amazing sort of almost back-free, you know, defensive system that have kept things feel faster and better than ever before.
0: So I, I think that's an interesting point, a couple of interesting points in there, but specifically, I want to ask you to dive a little bit deeper into the the LinkedIn and, and the webinar aspect where you mentioned that it wouldn't have been possible if we were all running around and you know, kind of doing our typical office routine that so many people were comfortable with pre-pandemic, you know, and everybody just kind of in their house all the time and and working all the time. Do you think that the interactions on LinkedIn, the, you know, desire for additional webinar content, and, you know, maybe even things like Clubhouse where, you know, you're plugged into an audio Mm -hmm. chat all day, do you think that those are going to persist or do you think that they're going to kind of retract and and, and go back to what they were before COVID-19?
1: so the, i can't give an answer right because anybody that does that's arrogant but i think we can look at comparisons again i look at the, i look at tv tv was really invented in idaho in like 1935 right pretty cool idea actually very successful a little too expensive but by, by 1939 1940 you could feel it was about to reach main main street well obviously it didn't happen during the second world war because you know cathode tube ray tubes are very valuable for radar and communication and there wasn't a capacity to broadcast so then the second world war tv explodes all right I'm I actually always believe that LinkedIn and webinars have had unbelievable value, but they couldn't break through the attention span of people because other things got in their way. Right? So once those other things stopped being in their way, they just explode in value instantly. So I think it's sort of like a repressed value that's being revealed that I think will actually get more and more interesting. The question to me with webinars is how will the methodology changed? There's a couple of things we did that I think will help. We put a search engine into ours so that after the thing went live, you could actually go back to it searching the words you cared about, you know, person Perseverance, embedded edge, Mars. And up would pop the sections in the webinar to talk about those things. And I think what happens is we're going to start finding searchable content gets really, really interesting really quick. I think things like Trinity Audio, where actually, you know, you can look at articles or LinkedIn and press a button and it talks about you when you're doing other stuff, are really useful too. But the question becomes is we can't use old precepts of oh, I'm connected to somebody. It's a relationship. No, you've got moments of connection. You have to you have to fertilize and grow them. And I think the failure will come when people don't fertilize or cultivate these relationships effectively enough, that they really can create value. It's in that they're almost like passing a digital business card with an acceptance of yes, I'd like to talk to you, but it doesn't mean you can sell the worst messages I get, and I get probably these at 95 out of 100. Is I have the services I'd like to sell you, but it's not what LinkedIn is for. LinkedIn is for a mutual exchange of ideas or sharing of process. Eventually it may turn into something, but you cannot see it as a, a sort of instant sales channel. And I think that's where it could really get damaged if it gets turned into sort of floodware sales requests that have little to any value for somebody. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, that that totally makes sense. And on a previous episode, I was speaking with someone. It's interesting. You mentioned the history of TV. We were talking about how early TV was really just radio with a camera right? And you just had two people sitting there with microphones doing a radio show and, and being filmed. You know, In, in terms of virtual events and, and webinars and whatnot, it's interesting to hear you talk about architecting the post-event experience as well as as the event experience. I spoke at a, a virtual conference recently. It was my first one. I've been holding out and trying not to do it. But um, it was very, uh, I would say it was very uh, early TV-esque where there was like a virtual trade show booth and like I had to go sit at a table, you know, a virtual table and then people would just like pop into the room and things like that. It was like this feels unnatural. But I think it's got to happen. We have to go through that awkward haircut phase to to get to where we're ultimately headed. And I definitely agree with you that there's a repressed value that just needed its moment to be able to be fully realized and I think smart marketers like yourself who are Focusing on taking these mediums to the next level, we'll get it figured out and and we'll architect a really engaging probably omni-channel experience, you know, more than totally virtual experience. But I, I think those are some good insights for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's a lot of it's different by the team. I think, you know, what I've, we all learn, right, is that we are greater than the sum of our parts. I'm really lucky to have a very mature, thoughtful, and adaptive team that say, hold it, there's something here, let's dig deep, right? It's really easy just to get caught in execution phase. Oh, execute 15 degrees, you know, one way to the other. This team at every level, right, has actually said, no, we're going to sniff around. We're going to try some stuff. We're going to fail, right? We're going to learn from it and move on. And we're going to keep adapting. And they've done a great job of learning to adapt to what I think is a really scary situation right when all of a sudden the whole world that you've been used to for 39, 40 years literally disappears in front of you
0: yeah I mean it's definitely the scariest employment situation and, and just kind of professional situation that most folks have been through 2008 and included. I guess if you could give one piece of advice to marketers at technology brands right now, and, and probably some of this is, is what you talk about with your team as well, what would you say is the most important thing for them to stay focused on in this scary time?
1: moments I think the idea of the moments you know what does a customer care about intrinsically in a maybe short period of time or over sort of long arc is the essence of it if you can heal to that moment if you can connect to that moment the, the ride may be rough but you're on the train and if you constantly try and bang away uh, at the train without opening the doors to get in you'll never get in the carriage right that, particularly under the duress of working at home where convenience in these progression really matter, you've got to focus on moments. And I can give you two really bad examples. We obviously, like any other client, do a lot of work with Salesforce. And so for the Salesforce to get a conversation with CMO is pretty rare and it's okay. But when a sales guy turns up and all he wants to do is sell you something new or more, Actually, actually asking what you're dealing with, how you've handled this pandemic, instant death. As I said, you know, if I look at LinkedIn, I'm always happy to connect with people. Whenever comes a case of I do this, you want it? Even in a pandemic environment, people's emotional recklessness is <laughs> a lot sharper than ever before. People don't just tolerate a lack of empathetic communication. think moments and empathy are the, are the two big things I'd say people need to continue to focus on.
0: That's some great advice. And those were things that I think were probably underrated before the pandemic, but our front and center, you know, main focus right now in every aspect of, you know, just kind of dealing with this whole situation and, and having some understanding about, that, you know, everybody really is going through this all together and, and we all need to kind of walk, walk in other folks' shoes. So very, yeah, very good great advice. We've had a lot of ups and downs in terms of un- unemployment. Hopefully we're on the upswing here, it looks like. But, you know, how would you take that advice that you would give to folks, uh, you know, in a marketing role right now and help folks that are actually looking for a job position their skill sets to be able to, you know, best succeed in in finding new new roles and, and new employment?
1: So I think it's interesting. There are two questions you have to ask yourself. And there's no perfect answer, right? Do I want to go back and do what I did before? And it's sort of like saying to a blacksmith, you know, do I want to go back and, you know, look after horses when actually I need to teach myself to make wheels and tires? And I think that illustration of old skill, new skill, you've got to ask it to yourself. Because I think, for example, a marketer with skills in Python is going to be eight times more valuable than a marketer that doesn't have skills in Python. It doesn't mean you're going to be doing it the whole time, but learning Python is probably a 30-hour activity that allows you to do levels of analytics instantly that you can't do elsewhere. I think the second question is what do you need to stand for is a post-COVID philosophy. What's your view of where the world is going to go is more important as a way of illustrating your skills than where the world has been. So if you want to apply for jobs and say, look, I really believe that empathy, engagement, you know, understanding what the customer's moments are, are really important, having the ability to analyze very quickly, you know, move 15 degrees here, move 15 degrees there are skills. You're going to be really well off. I think if you want to go back and do what you've done before and be plenty of those jobs, it, it, they're going to be difficult. And I worry that as the world changes, like the blacksmith argument it changes much faster than we really recognize so what we used to think was relevant a year ago two or three years time when you're in the middle of a company may actually not be anything like as relevant as you hoped it would be things never return and we built a business after 2008 very lucky got it sold because we realized the world was going to be so different after that market meltdown you're not going to return to the same nuances you had before they're going to be very specific new nuances that make a difference that's a long answer i'm sorry.
0: So you have to have strong beliefs and and be willing and able to adapt, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, and you've got to decide where those go because it's very, I think life is very tough, right? We have families, income pressures. Kids, dogs, you know, neighborhoods, personal development environments. It's easy to say, okay, I think I'm comfortable with this. I think the ability to generate that growth mindset capability, but with very targeted skills that have value, I think is where people have to go because we are living in a really adaptive world. I'll give you a scary example. By 2030, about $7 trillion of the U.S. economy, which will be about 70% of all the growth that the U.S. economy goes under between 2020 and 2030, is going to be machine-driven, AI, robotics, Automation. 70% of the growth is not going to come from humans. It's going to come from machines. So if you're not comfortable dealing with data, if you're not comfortable dealing with interactions between machines and data, it's going to be really difficult in less than eight years to have an effective career growth model, right? So for example, if you were a nurse back in the 50s, it was a great, it was a solid job and not well paid. If you're a nurse practitioner now, you're almost a junior doctor. The pay is incredible. There's small shifts in skills over relatively short periods of time, not like nursing, can make a really big difference to you. And I think people have to sit back, really reflect on. On what their best version needs to be to be successful. So that home life, personal career are, are the best versions of themselves. They're not just repeat chapters of where they've been before
0: that's a great real world example. And I think it's scary to think, you know, jobs like yours and, and mine could be replaced by computers pretty soon. And, uh, you know, oh, in yeah, many cases, <laughs> already are, right? And I think you can sit there and, and kind of, you know, just lament it and cower in fear, or you can think about how you can proactively move in a direction that will, you know, collaborate. Yeah, so let me
1: give an example that's, I think, easy, right? For Google or AltaVista or like any of these search engines, there were big publishing house. they printed things, you put ads in them, you bought a database, you sent a note out, you went to an event, right? That that industry, let's say, had an index of a hundred total As Google got better and better and Lycos and these other guys tried it, but certainly Google won it. The ad market went from the biggest companies that could afford it all or- all the way down to a single shop selling flowers in Sioux City or Sioux Falls, Idaho. All right, because the, the, digi- the digital world makes anything available to everybody when they want. So if you were, you know, selling ad space in print magazines, not only does this print magazines go, but. Frankly, even the direct selling of ads went because it went onto Google and you made the decisions yourself based on price optimization. So the reality is a lot of jobs are going to become automated, partly, partially, or fully. But what it can't be automated is new stuff. So this ability to reinvent yourself gives you the ability to stay ahead of the curve in a way that I think is vital for companies and individuals in marketing to do.
0: I agree with that. I I definitely agree with that. So... Awesome. Well, that's some great advice, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Very much appreciate it.
1: Well, look, thank you. Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. You'll find me. Listen to the podcast on Forbes, Futures in Focus. I have to say, I noticed as we were doing this recording, Biden announced that the US wants to radically reduce its carbon emissions by 2030. I'm not sure why he chose the year 2030. And I shall take credit because the podcast is called Futures in Focus, The World of 2030. But catch it on Forbes and get with me on LinkedIn. It's been great to be here today. Thank
0: you. Well, that's great. I love real-time predictions and, and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll mark it down. We'll put the timestamp out with that. Oh, that's funny. So Michael, thank you again. This is Brian Erickson with Cardwell Beach. Thanks to everyone for listening and please make sure to check back for more senior marketers sharing their perspectives on what marketing look like in the COVID-19 world.